Alright, ladies and gentlemen, perfect timing. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our second lesson. Our second fabulous lesson of the art of marriage. So welcome back. So it's like this. Yeah, I create many uh, topics for different things, whether it's an email or in a class or in a lecture or a special event. Lots of class, lots of topics. Some topics need explanation. The some topics are nebulous, some are vague, some are like what are, what's what's the topic really going to be about? And then others kind of speak for themselves. Folks, the topic tonight is Jewish bedroom secrets. I think uh, the topic kind of speaks for itself. The objective of this class is to change the way you think about and experience intimacy. But first, a question. Here's a question that I want to ask. All right? Now, the question that I want to ask, well, I want to ask and I will ask. Take a piece of paper and a pen and write down what are, here's the question, what are, I try to, I don't have good wording for the question, but you're going to, you're just going to work with me on the question. What are the benefits of intimacy? When I say benefits, what are the benefits? What are the benefits of intimacy? Alright, take a moment, take about 60 seconds, write, you don't have to share them if you don't want to share them, your ideas, you could share if you want to, etc. We'll, we'll pick it up in about 60 seconds. No, intimacy is, intimacy is physical intimacy, yeah. In general, we're going to be speaking in this class in what they say in Yiddish, an, an edel way, in other words, a refined way. We're not going to, we don't, but intimacy, that's going to be our keyword. All right, again, what are the benefits of intimacy? 45 seconds. All right, 10 more seconds. All right, pencils down. Again, this will count on your permanent record, as always. All right, but in all seriousness, does anybody want to, want to share some ideas of, that you had on the benefits of intimacy? Sure. Trust. Okay, good. Feeling secure. Good. Being of service. Okay, good. Gaining confidence. Okay, great. Okay, well, what was that said again? Knowingness. Knowingness, okay, good. Good. I like it. What else? Physical satisfaction. Physical satisfaction. Good. Stress release. Relief. Stress relief. Uh, something special you only do with your spouse. Okay, good. Good exercise. There you go. Perhaps even a sacred space. Sacred space. Ooh, I like that. I like Ah, now we're talking. Now we're talking. <laughs> good. So, huh? That's, you had that? <laughs> They got a lot of ooh la so you're like, oh, you're all over that. Any other, yeah? Unique communication. Unique communication? Good. Good. Good stuff. Okay, I like that. I like that. 
Good, yeah. A closer, more involved soul. Closer, more involved soul. soul. Good, good. All right, a lot of good ideas here. What we're going to be discussing tonight and what we'll be learning is what Torah has to say about the benefits and the purpose of intimacy. We'll discover also ways to enhance the experience of intimacy as described in Torah sources. So like I said last week, there is a lot of wisdom, there has been a lot of wisdom that has been shared, a lot of Jewish wisdom over the last 3,000 years or so. And knowing, I said the purpose, knowing the why of intimacy will profoundly affect the what and the how of intimacy as well. This is true in any endeavor. If you know the why, then you can, you can shape, you can form the what and the how. It all goes back to the why. why what's the objective? What's the purpose? Etc. Alright, so let's begin. Um, lesson 2, Bedroom Secrets, Jewish View on Intimacy. That's the topic tonight. Um, just a note that I, I mentioned before, but I, again, I just want to mention one more time, is that obviously we always have an open discussion in this class. We encourage a lot of discussion. But we're going to uh, try to talk about the topic in a, in a Torah manner. Torah talks about the topic in a manner that is refined. Again, the word that I used before is the Yiddish word, Edel. Even that's a, it's a name. I don't know, anybody, know any Edels? Edel? Edel, yeah, it's the same. It's got to be Edel, yeah, yeah. It's probably Edel. Edel means refined. Yeah. Edel means uh, refined. <laughs> no, not usually. At least not that we're sharing with each other. All right. So that's uh, that's by way of introduction. Let's begin. I want to begin with the question: Is intimacy dirty? Now, why do I ask this question? Because intimacy and religion have a very rocky relationship. Relationship on the rocks. Most religions frown on intimacy and advocate celibacy. Either as a universal ideal, in other words, everybody should practice celibacy, or at the very least, encouraging or mandating the, uh, the clergy to practice celibacy. Right? We're all familiar with this idea. Let's take a look at text 1. Let's kick the, ca- the class off. Text 1, page 26. Howard, take it away. There you go, Encyclopedia Britannica. Did they stop? They're stopping printing. Did anybody see that? Yes. For the first time, they're not printing the, the print version only online? Huh? Yeah, this year, they're stopping. Crazy stuff. Anyway, so look what, he's, look what it says in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Online. Oh, there you go, see? Um, celibacy, okay. Throughout history and virtually all the major religions of the world. You know the story that they tell about the old monk who was assigned to, to copy ancient... You know the story? copy ancient manuscripts and he copies it and suddenly they hear from the room saying oh they hear sobbing they rush in they say what's wrong he says it says celebrate anyway huh anyway but I kid Um, certainly but the point is that major religions promote celibacy again either as a universal ideal or at least for Clergy either either strongly advocated or required, even. So, and celibacy, by the way, is not a Catholic invention. It existed in ancient Mediterranean pagan religions. It exists in many other religions. It exists uh, in some form or another. Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism. Jainism, is that how you pronounce it? Jainism? Anyway, it exists in many different forms and, uh, and, and faiths. 
So here's my question. And let's, let's think about this question. Why is it that celibacy, that is not practicing intimacy, why do you think that it's held up to such a high, as such a high spiritual ideal? Why do you think that it's held as, as a spiritual ideal? Why, why do you think it might be an ideal? Okay, good. Good, good. Anybody want to expand on that idea? Deprivation. Deprivation is a good thing. Why is it a good thing? It shows that the mind can overcome the body. Okay, good. I like that. I like that. And now I want to. So, in other words, yeah. So, I want to expand on this idea on what both of of y'all said. And that is like this that religions are looking at, many religions and many people, many of us, look at the body as a barrier to spirituality. In other words, spiritual pursuits occur through higher experiences. Right? How do you have a spiritual experience? It's through typically an experience that doesn't involve the body. The body is considered to be the arch nemesis, the kryptonite, if you will, of a spiritual experience. You want to have a spiritual experience? Mazel tov. It's not going to include... Eating, drinking, and intimacy. It's not going to include that. Because a spiritual experience is something that's removed from the body, outside of the body experience. So again, we perceive intimacy of flesh as the nemesis, as the enemy of spirituality. Let's take a look at text 2. This is captured nicely in text 2. Charna, take it away, page 27. In a religious setting, the obstacle of the body poses on one side will be conceptualized as a barrier between the individual and God. Therefore, to become closer to God means to become alienated from one's body and bodily functions. First and foremost, from the sexual drive. As a result, the abstinence from sex must be regarded by this intellectual and emotional sense as leading to a more perfect human state and to closeness to God. Okay, so, and that's from a book, a very interesting book that you can uh, read about in the little description down there. Again, the idea here is that if somebody wants to become closer to God, Somebody wants to become more perfect as a human being, closer to God. So, the, the body, the flesh, is standing in the way of that. So, the less, the, the less of body you are, the closer to the spirit you can become. So, the body is standing in the way to this higher experience. Alright, now, this is true in general of the body. The body seems to be you know, the exact opposite from a soulful, a spiritual experience. What is considered to be the most fleshly of the bodily desires, urges, etc.? Intimacy, right? So therefore, it's, it's, by, it's by a very simple extrapolation that intimacy is considered to be the, archety- the archetype of that which holds a person back from a pure connection with the divine. So to lead a holy, spiritual, higher life is to, in this, in this mindset, in this uh, framework, in this concept, is to push away the distractions of the body. Now, how do you live a higher life, a spiritual life? How do you, how do you become connected to God? You've got to push away the physical distractions. You've got to push away the bodies. The body's going to get in the way. Right? You can't connect to God and be eating a steak at the same time. It's not going to work. So you've got to push away all the physical stuff. For, first and foremost, intimacy. And then you can connect... With God, so intimacy in this conception is lowly, shameful, may even be evil, right? Because it's 
It's combating, it's, it's against the, uh, the spiritual connection, the godly connection. So celibacy then, in, in, this, uh, in this conception, is considered to be the ideal. It happens to be that concessions are made for those that are not clergy to, uh, to engage in intimacy and not be celibate, even though that is, that is the ideal. But it's, I guess the consideration is that professional spiritualists, right? if you're a professional, so then you, know, you, don't, you don't engage in this activity. If you're an amateur, all right, so then you can, uh, can kind of engage here and engage there, etc. But a professional spiritualist, clergy, etc., you got it. Now, marriage, let's speak about marriage for a second. Marriage represents an additional obstacle to spiritual connection, to spiritual life. Think about it. Marriage suddenly means that God is not your exclusive. Right? You got, you're, married, you're not only married to God, you're married to someone else. And you have to, you know, you got dates and roses and schedules and, you know, dinners and lunches. And then you have budgets and mortgages and then you have kids and then you have carpools and soccer practice and piano recitals and all that stuff. All that great stuff. But the point is, in the traditional religious or... Yeah, traditional religious uh, understanding, this pulls a person away from a higher connection, from a connection with God. Because instead of being God's, as I said before, instead of God being your exclusive partner, so to speak, now you're sharing your time with somebody else. So, so, so relationships. You know, yes. Families, that Again, in many, in, in many religions, the idea of marriage is out. Especially for clergy. Why is marriage out? Because you can't be married, have a family, have all of those commitments, and be committed to God at the same time. It's either one or the other. And so if you're a professional, right? if you're clergy, you can't have that, uh, that distraction. Let alone the distraction of the intimacy, the pleasures of the flesh, etc., that will pull away. Again, this is not the Jewish view. This is, the, this is, the, this is another view out there. Now, here's the truth. This is not just something, a view that was espoused, that, or that is espoused by religions. It was also espoused by the ancient philosophers, like the Greek philosophers. Um, Hellenism talked about flesh and marriage as thwarting the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. Let's take a look. Let's read this. Text number three. Philo. Anybody know what Philo is? It's that dough, right? There you go. Philo dough. But Philo was also a Jewish fellow. You know who Philo was? Philo of Alexandria? Okay. Philo, I mean, you can see right here in the bio. He was a Jewish Hellenist philosopher who attempted to synthesize Jewish thought with Greek philosophy. Interesting stuff. Anyway, he lived around the, uh, uh, the beginning of the Common Era. You see 10 BC through, through 50 CE. So he lived before, like the years right before the destruction of the, of the Second Temple. Anyway, let's take a look at what he says in text 3. Howard, take it away. Chief cause of ignorance is the flesh in our affinity for it. Moses himself affirms this when he says that because they are flesh, the divine spirit cannot abide. Marriage, indeed, and the rearing of children, the provision of necessities, the ill repute that comes in the wake of poverty, business, both private and public, and a host of other things, wilt the flower of wisdom before it blooms. Nothing, however, so forth its growth as our flesh. So what is Philo saying? He's saying that he's not even speaking about it from a spiritual level. He's speaking about the concept of the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of wisdom, the idea of philosophy. 
is going to be that pursuit is going to be limited by huh by the flesh and our pursuit of by our affinity for flesh right the chief cause of ignorance is the flesh and our affinity for it and he says at the end what is the most he says marriage is problematic rearing of children is problematic right provisions etc making a living all that stuff he says the worst though is our fleshly nature and he's referring here to, to, to the idea of intimacy so that is, in, in the philosopher's opinion, as we see captured here by Philo, um, that, again, we see that the body is standing, it's almost like, let's put it this way, it's almost like religions and, the, the religions and philosophy are drawing a line in the ground, line in the sand, a deep line, and saying, look, it's either the flesh, it's either the body, it's either the physical stuff, or it's the spiritual stuff, or it's wisdom, or it's philosophy, or it's knowledge, Right? And it's one or the other. And if you have one, you're not going to have the other. One is going to diminish your experience of the other. So, you want to have both, alright, but you're going to have a watered-down experience of the spiritual, you're going to have a watered-down experience of God, you're going to have a watered-down experience of the, of the wisdom that you're going to be able to attain. It's wonderful. You want to take care of the kids? Fantastic. But you're not going to be able to pursue wisdom as you would be if you weren't uh, raising children. You want to be married? Fantastic. Again, maybe they wouldn't say fantastic, but theoretically fantastic, but you're not going to be spiritual. You're not going to be as spiritual as you could be without that. That's why the, uh, the clergy cannot have that experience, etc. Et okay, so again, th- this opinion has it that the flesh and the spirit are opposites, polar opposites, involving in one takes away from the other. Any questions before we get to the Jewish take? We're good? Well, there, I noticed there that he was also said to speak to Caligula, too, you know, highly known as a, a, a guy of incredible flesh, desire, that kind of guy. So, given that time... He might have been uh, in the context. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. It's a good point. It's a good point. But in general, we find this notion. And I think a lot of us, on some level, also relate to it. It's that we understand that the more we're involved in the mundane stuff, as we think, the less we can be involved in the higher stuff. I think most of us would kind of look at it as a zero-sum game, and, and it's like a seesaw, and the more you're on this side, the less you're on that side, etc. Right? I think most of us... Now... Judaism, of course, as we know, has a completely different take on this. Judaism in no way encourages celibacy. Doesn't. Um, there is no place in Torah where it says, even though he quoted Moses, but again, that's somewhat out of context, there's no place in Torah where Torah says that celibacy is the key to a higher connection with God. Or that intimacy is frowned upon for whatever reason. Not at all. Intimacy, marriage are not shameful, they're not lowly, they're not evil, God forbid, not at all. Yeah, in fact, marriage and intimacy are encouraged, marriage and intimacy are encouraged, considered holy. This is the key word, they're considered holy. Look back, if you remember what we said last week. What is the first stage of marriage? What's it called? Kedushin. What does that mean? Holy! Marriage is holy! It's not only is it not a distraction, but it is holy! I mean, it's holy. Not only does it not take away from holiness, it is defined as holiness. But why? We have to understand. So that's what, that's what Judaism says. But what's the understanding? How do we understand this? In other words, if we posit that there is an attachment, there's a higher attachment or a lower attachment, and one will take away from the other, if that's the perspective, then how could it be that the flesh is not a distraction to the spiritual? So to understand the radical perspective of Judaism on this, to take it even a step further. 
Let's take a look at the holiest place on earth. Where is that? Huh? Pittsburgh. Now, the holiest place on earth. Johannesburg. The holiest place on earth. Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, where was the holiest place back in the day? The temple. In the temple, what was the, what was the holiest space? The Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies. You're jumping in. In the Holy of Holies, where was the holiest space? The Ark. The Holy of Holies, just to describe, the temple was a structure on uh, the Harabais, on the Temple Mount. And the temple was a larger structure. The temple had a specific chamber. The innermost chamber was known as the Holy, the Kodesh Hakadoshim, the Holy of Holies. In the Holy, the Holy of Holies was twenty cubits by twenty cubits. It was a square room. A cubit is well. There's a dis- shockingly, there's a dispute as to how large in our measurements a cubit is. The typical, uh, we typically say that it's about eighteen inches. So a cubit is about a foot and a half. So twenty cubit by twenty cubit is about thirty by thirty feet. Okay, so you have a 30 by 30 foot room. Inside in the center is this, I think it was 5 cubit by 5 cubit or 10 by 10. I don't remember which one. Anyway, you have this arc that's in the middle. What's an arc? How do you define an arc? Like the Raiders of the Lost Ark? What's an arc? It looks like, right, it's a box. An arc is a box, right? Hollow in the middle with a cover on top. Let's take a look at how Torah describes, but how did it look in the movie? I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, the things... Okay, well, good, so we're going to get there in a second. Good. It showed that in the... In the I never... I don't know if I ever saw it. Huh? What is it? Did you, oh, it did have it. In gold. Shh. Nice stuff. Let's, so let's read about the original. Who's the fellow in that? What's, what's that? Harrison Ford. Is he, still, is he still around? Oh, Spielberg was involved with it? Oh, Spielberg was involved. Nice. Interesting. Spielberg, yes. like, I know this stuff. I went to Hebrew school. Come on. Alright, let's take a look at, uh, at text 4a, page 28. Bobby, take it away. Text 4a. You shall make an ark covered of pure gold, and you shall make two golden cherubims of hammered work, rising from the two ends of the ark cover. Okay, good. So that is a description of. I just put some stuff up. Okay, that is a description of what's known in Hebrew as the Kruvim, and I guess the cherubs or the cherubim. I'm not sure what the English. Uh, I guess the cherubim. We'll go with that. So what? What were they? They were, well, it doesn't really say what they were. It says two golden cherubim of hammered work rising from the two ends of the ark cover. They had, so we know they had wings. What do they look like? Okay, before we get to what they look like, what was their function? Like, what was the point? Again, the ark, what was in the ark? Let's take one step back. What was inside the ark? Well, the tablets, the tablets. You know what God told Moses? Take two of these, call me in the morning. Now, you were better last week. I was I? Yeah, you can't compare. Every week is unique. Now, but, so. According to Mel Burton, it was three Was it? What happened? He, he said, take three. Right. Oh, sorry, that's. <laughs> that's right. Nice. He dropped one. He dropped one. What are you going to do? All right, so again, in the ark, you had two tablets. Now, the two tablets represented Torah. On top of the ark was a cover. That I get. You got a box, you got a cover on. Every nice box has a cover. But not every box has a nice cover that's made out of gold with these figures with wings on it. That's a little, that's a little heavy. So what happened 
what, what was like what was the purpose of the cover of the two cherubim? Like, what was it ornamental? Did it serve a function? What's going on? So the Torah tells us. The Torah itself, not a commentary. The Torah itself tells us what the purpose was. Continue, text four B. You got a double header. Oh wow! I will arrange my meetings with you there, from atop the ark's cover, from between the two cherubims that are upon the ark of the testimony. I will tell you all that I will instruct you to relate to the children of Israel. So, according to the Torah itself, what was the function of the two cherubim? Meeting. Mark. Meeting place. Uh, mark the spot. Here is where the divine will communicate with the human being. Here is where heaven and earth converge. This is the place, in a sense, where heaven and earth kiss. This is the place between the two cherubim, between the two cherubim, right there on the top of the ark. Now, huh? Okay, hold on. We're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna get a little bit deeper as far as like what the significance is, but it's kind of like that. It's kind of like words channeled. Now, take a look. At the next text, text 5. We'll get there in a second. Let's ask another question. What did they look like? Don't read text 5 yet. We'll, we'll get to there soon. What did they look like? You tell me. Based on what you know, what you've seen. What did they look like? Little, little angels, little face, the head faces. Little angels. Okay. Anything? Can you give me anything else? Anything more? Were they fat? Were they? I don't. Uh, depends on where it's coming. It really? Is that? Is that how? Is that? Is that? Is that how we picture them? Is that? I don't. Know, this is. This is one picture that I have. Huh? It, yeah. I don't know. It's a little bit like vague. Right. It does look like a like a. Looks, well, no. There's definitely there's definitely a head over there. The, yeah. There's definitely long wings. Okay. Let's take a look at text 5. Let's see if we can pick up some more clues. Text 5. Mark, take it away. Oh, by the way, wait, wait, before you read this. By the way, even though these, these cherubim were in the Holy of Holies, which was pretty much a, a sealed up place, a room that only one person went into once a year, nonetheless, everyone knew what they looked like. How? Because once a year, the curtains were open for all to see. Yom Kippur. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. You're going to read that. Text 5. From the Talmud. Tractate Yoma, which is all about the service of Yom Kippur. The whole tractate is dedicated to Yom Kippur. Text 5. When the Jewish people came up to Jerusalem in the festivals, the person that was in front of the Holy of Holies was rolled aside, and the cherubim, whose bodies were intertwined with one another, were shown to, shown to, to them? Yeah. Were shown to them. Uh, and the assembled Jews were told, look, you are beloved before God as the love between man and woman. So, what detail did you pick up now about the Kruvim, about the Shruvim? They're intertwined. What else? Yeah, 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 yeah. It says that the one was male, one was female. Now, what exactly does that mean? I don't know. But it says one was symbolic of a male angelic figurine, and the other of a female. And they were, as we see in the Talmud, they were intertwined. They were embracing. So, think about this. Think about this for a second. In the Holy of Holies, of the Holy Temple, right? In the Holy, on the Holy Ark, in the Holy of Holies, in the Holy Temple, on the Temple Mount, in the holiest place on earth, in Jerusalem, the holiest city. What's at that epicenter? What is at the epicenter? Figures of a male and a female in an intimate embrace. 
Forget the idol. The I, forget, we can. No, that's that's part, as part of the question. I don't want to focus on that question because it, it's a little bit slightly. Out. But look at the concept you have here in the Holy of Holies, and what is at the core? What is at the essence of it? An intimate embrace. Does that seem right? I mean, does that seem like? Now, obviously, the Torah says. God says in Torah, but how does that, in fact... So first of all, that should tell us one thing. Forget, forget what it tells us. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's present how the, um, the conquerors of Judea view this. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Probably the priests, temple uh, executives... Temple officials. Temple officials, say. Eh? Um, yeah, no, the idea was to look and to see, again, because we, we said that that space is where God connects, in a sense, with, with communicates, in a sense, with mankind. So this is, this is the nexus of where that happens. And so it says, God loves you as the love between man and woman. And that love of intimacy is symbolized by the crew that we're in this intimate embrace. So it symbolizes God's embrace of us. So it's kind of like... But that's uh, but the, and they were shown that for the purpose of recognizing the connection that they had. Okay, now next step, next step. So again, so it's a little bit it's a little bit interesting that in the holiest place, in the holiest space on earth, what is what is the the imagery? What is going on there? This intimate embrace between the male and the female uh, kruvim cherubim. This was not lost on the conquerors of Judea. They could not at all relate to this. And they used this fact that they discovered to denigrate the Jews. Um, John, take it away. Text 6a. That's from the book of Echa, the book of Lamentations. So all who honored her now scorned her because they saw her disgrace. What the Talmud says, what did they see? What is it they saw her disgrace? What does that mean? They saw the Kruvim, they pulled out the Ark. Now, did they pull out the Ark? Did they pull out a, a, a copy of it? That's, another, that's a more elaborate discussion because it says also, the sages say that the, that the real vessels of the temple were buried in the ground and so therefore, so there was no Ark. There was maybe a replica on the walls, a picture of it. it anyway, the point is that they showed others, this referring to the Romans that conquered the temple. So the Romans, they pull out the Kruvim or a replica of the Kruvim or a depiction of the Kruvim that are intertwined and they said, look, Look what this, the Holy of Holies, that was like the holiest places to, to, to worship God. And what is it? It's intimacy? you got to be kidding me. That's like the lowest of the low. And they, uh, they were making fun of the Jews. Okay, so what does this tell you? What does this tell you? Let's read one more text. Text 6b, before you formulate an opinion. Text 6b, continue, John. Does this, uh, what does this mean? No, no, no. We always stay apolitical. We always stay apolitical. No, but hold on. What is, look at this commentary. I love this commentary. It's a modern commentary. Look what he says. He says, 
What was the problem? They viewed intimacy as debauchery and lustful obsession. So therefore, in other, think about project. Think about projection. Oh, that's number one. But also think about the concept of you know basic psychological concept of. Uh, projection. What, the way you see something is the way you view, you project outward. So they view intimacy as something low. Right? As we said before, the typical worldview of, of, of intimacy is that which is not holy, that which is not spiritual, that which is not a divine experience, pulls you away from the divine. So in the space of divine, in the holy of holies, you have a depiction of intimacy with these angelic figurines. What does that mean? Like what, that, 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 that It's it's ludicrous. It's lowly. If you look at it, if you look at intimacy as lowly, then this depiction is indeed lowly. Judaism obviously looks at it a little bit differently. If you look at it as the holiest experience that a human being can attain, well then, maybe it makes a little bit more sense that it's in the Holy of Holies. Now, let's take a look at 6C. Hold on, hold on one second, one second. Let, let me read 60 because I, I just want to f- segue right into it. In other words, if you look at intimacy as something lowly, so then you say, how is it in the Holy of Holies? But if intimacy is itself the Holy of Holies, if it's the holiest experience that a person can attain, the Holy of Holies, then it's uh, an appropriate symbol in the holiest space on earth. And let's see that Nachmanides, the famous Nachmanides, he writes this in his, one of his commentaries, um, right there in text 6C. John, continue with 6C. You see that? If it was indeed debauchery, lust, right, dirty, sinful, lowly, etc., then they wouldn't be in the holiest and purest place near. So the other nations, the invading Romans, who took their inspiration philosophically from the Greeks, so they said, this is lowly. And this is what the Jews are worshipping, something so lowly and physical. Ah, what's wrong with the Jews? Ah. We thought they might have been something special. Now we see for sure they're just uh, a bunch of a bunch of uh, you know whatever, huh? Yeah, whatever. You know, the lowly people. Whereas, in, on the contrary, Judaism teaches this is on the contrary. It's the holy of holies, right? Intimacy, when properly experienced, is great and sublime. It shares the profound secret of the truva. Anyway, so this now we haven't explained why and how and what that means, but this is the concept that we're going to explore. My first question was, but this might have answered it, yeah. was to me it's quite a leap to go from an embrace to intimacy. Well, it's the idea... If it's a male and a female, I didn't... Exactly. Know yeah, 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 yeah. It's a male and female. And the embrace was... I, I don't know if that depicts it well, but it was it, it lended itself to some sort of... In, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't, they don't look like human beings, but the point is there was, a, there was an embrace. On some level, an embrace. And the question is, is that appropriate? I mean, is that appropriate? In, in yeah, but there's a bad. Yeah, but the Talmud says there's a male, right? So, in other words, it's, it, it does have that connotation of, of an intimate embrace, and and the question is, is that you know how does that make sense in the context of a holy of holies? That's what the invading armies, that's what the invading invading Romans questioned. That's what they uh, you know they were they were shocked by. But again, what this tells us is that the Jewish take on intimacy is far from being a lowly. Uh, 
concession to fleshly drives and, and animalistic you know, nature. On the contrary, intimacy can be an experience that allows God to be merged with the human being. In other words, that can be the Holy of Holies, that, uh, that nexus of heaven and earth. Okay, let's, uh, let's take a look at text 7a. Because now we have to ask the question, why is intimacy such a holy experience in Judaism? Is what is it about the experience that is, uh, that is so holy? So let's take a look at, we have a bunch of texts here, 7a, b, and c, that describe um, the, uh, the human room, if you will. Alright, let's take a look. Uh, Joanne, 7a. Here we have, here's the opening, a general concept. Husband and wife, when they're worthy, and what worthy means we'll define soon, a little bit later, God resides between them. So again, we have this idea of, like the Kruvim, like the Cherubim, that represented, there was a space where God and, 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 and human beings uh, uh, merge, so husband and wife are worthy, God resides between them. That's almost like between the Kruvim, right? Between the Cherubim, right? That's where God resides in that space of that embrace. Uh, between uh, husband and wife. Alright, continue 7b. For God divided his name between them, a good and the man and a hay and the Okay, Rashi comments. This is, uh, this, is a, this is an allegorical. We still haven't hit the mystical dimension. This is more called remez. This is like an allegory, like a hint in the letters. The Hebrew word for man is ish. For woman is isha. The Talmud, uh, Rashi points out in his commentary on the Talmud that ish and isha share two letters um, in their name. Two letters are the same. Aleph and Shin. Aleph and Shin. Those two letters are the same. The two letters that are different, or the, the one letter that's different in each of the names, is the Yud for Ish, and the He for Isha. Yud and He together is one of the names of the Divine, one of the names of God. So the Talmud says, as Rashi, as Rashi points out, that when man and woman are together, in other words, in the space of that union, and as we'll see soon, we're referring to specifically an intimate union, because that's the closest union that there can be between man and woman. So in that space of the union, there's actually God's name. Whereas separate, you don't have God's name together. You have a yud here and a hey there. Together in the union, you have, uh, you have God's presence. So again, that's like the cherubim that have God's presence between them in their embrace on top of the ark. Let's take a look at... There's a too. Oh, hold on one second. One second. Yeah. Yeah. And they saw, you know, in gold, two animals, clearly male and female, in an embrace. It would stand to reason that they worship animal sexual relations. Or I don't know if they're animals, maybe they're angelic, but on some some sort of right. imagery of that. And that's what the Romans were saying. Look, these people are worshiping, and the answer is not worshiping. But the cons- it, it, it exists, the parallels on a few different levels. In other words, the, the God's presence with us is as intimate as the intimate embrace between, as an intimate embrace. In other words, there's that oneness. But also, God resi- the message for us is that the, the, the experience of intimacy is an experience that has the power to channel the divine. Where God's presence is in a, in a way that's greater than any other experience. We're going to get to the point where we say that God is, can be found more in the bedroom than the synagogue. That's the point. That's what we're getting to. We're going to build up. The key, one of the key texts is going to be text 8, which we'll get to soon. But take a look at text 7c before we get there. Yeah, please. Yeah. The degree of God's presence in a person's life depends on the degree of 
Okay, so take a look at that. That's, this is the Maharal of Prague. The famous Maharal, created the golem, etc. So look what he says. He says, when, when does God... God's presence in a person's life is based on the degree of perfection. It's almost like, um, like a vessel. The more perfect the vessel... I'll give, I'll give you an example. The example is going to be of an example. The, my analogy is going to be an analogy itself. The more fitting the analogy... Right, the more the idea what the analog is to comes through. Does that make sense? In other words, I'm going to tell you, I give you an analogy for the concept. So the more fitting the analogy is, the more the concept will come through. If I give you a random analogy that has nothing to do with uh, with the concept, so you're just going to be confused. So the more fitting the vessel, the more light can be found in the vessel. The more eloquent the words, the more the ideas, perhaps, or at least the more uh, fitting the words, appropriate the words, the more the idea will shine through those words. So vessel and light, vessel and content work together. So the same thing is true, Maral says, with us and God. The more perfect we are, in other words, the more of a vessel we are, complete we are, um, in a, in a divine sense, so the more God will rest upon us. The more God can be found upon us. And what does he say? Man and woman are individually complete. We talked about this last week. The perfection that happens, the union, the perfection that happens when the soul is reunited. So he says, together they constitute a complete and perfected union. So when man and woman unite, God rests upon them. So it's not only in soul, but it's also in body. When you have this physical, intimate union, you have a completion of the two individuals. And at that point, the morale says... God can reside there. God's presence can be found there. Because you have this union. You have a perfect spot for God's presence to reside. This is still... Uh, it's, it's a deeper angle on it, but it's still a little bit nebulous. Text 8 is where it really comes through. And this is... We've gone from the Talmud to the commentaries to the Maral, and now we're going to get to Kabbalah. Text 8. Right. Take it away. So look at the Zohar, and this is such a beautiful text. The idea of, it's, this is from Job, from Eov. It says, V'hu be'echad. God, V'hu he, God, is in one. And the question is, what do you mean God is in one? God is one. Not in one. God is in one. We say, Shema Yisrael, hero Israel. Hashem Lekeinu, the Lord is our God. Hashem Echad, the Lord is one. What does it mean the Lord is in one? So the Zohar explains, Kabbalah explains, well, what does it mean he is in one? Where is God found? God is found in Two human beings that merge into one. When does that happen? Well, we said it happens at marriage, but it happens in marriage. There's almost the beginnings of that union. There's a soul fusion that we said last week. There's the beginning of the possibility of a physical union. But when the physical union of intimacy occurs, when, when male and female, when husband and wife, become one in both body and soul, then God f- finds a place to dwell. God dwells in that oneness. God is one, and God dwells in oneness. That is the perfect vessel and the vehicle to express the divinity, to express godliness. So, again, this is in complete contradistinction to uh, prevailing 
a world thought, or maybe our own thoughts coming in, which that intimacy and the physical, the physical intimacy is a concession to fleshly desires, is something low, something that pulls us away, at the very least a distraction to a higher divine experience. And the reality is that Judaism says, on the contrary, on every level, whether it's on a basic scriptural level, whether it's a more a Talmudic level, whether it's a Kabbalistic level, on every level, Judaism teaches the same thing consistently all the way through, and that is that intimacy is not a distraction from the divine, is not a space in which we're only focusing on the physical, and it's coming at the expense of the spiritual. It's now God, it's not your time, it's my time. No, on the contrary, the moment of intimacy, the moments of intimacy can be the most uh, divine experience, are are, are the moments in which we can channel God's presence in a way that cannot be channeled any other time. In other words, God's oneness, God's perfect oneness, is expressed and found in the moment when two human beings become one in a perfect oneness. And that is the moment of intimacy. Now, what this tells us is that intimacy is a very, is a very powerful experience. It has the power to channel the divine. Now, we know with anything powerful, what's the famous, uh, with great power comes great... Responsibility. Why? Because power can be used for the good or for the opposite. All right? May the force be with you, preferably, right? So the idea here is that intimacy can be used in destructive ways, right? Intimacy can be used in negative, destructive, hurtful, manipulative, etc. ways. But that doesn't take away from the power of intimacy for good and the, power, the divine power of it as well. So, on the contrary, the fact that it has the, perhaps the greatest potential for destructive uh, behavior, destructive uh, you know, scenarios, that teaches us as the, as the positive potential for it as well. No experience has the potential for true oneness between a husband and wife as the experience of intimacy. So, if God is found, as the Talmud says, when, when husband and wife join together, God is found there. So, the closer husband and wife are, right, the more intimate the union, the more God is found there. And the more God can be, uh, can be expressed in that, in that experience. So, that's why Jewish tradition advocates intimacy on Friday nights. You know that? Friday nights. Why Friday nights? What better time to experience the holiness of intimacy than the holiest day of the week? That's not limited to Friday night, but there's an idea of a special focus Friday night. And advocates intimacy on Friday nights. There's no, there's no more appropriate day um, or, or night uh, for the holiness of intimacy than the holiest day of the week. That's the idea. Makes sense? Okay. Good. Let's, uh, let me present one more idea, and then we're going to get into uh, three ways to enhance intimacy from a Jewish perspective. Now, this is all of this that we just explained. And again, I hope this, you see, it's almost, it's one of those experiences where, and I say this often, if you give an answer without the question, then the answer is not an answer. Because if the question never bothered you, then the answer is not going not gonna to satisfy if the question is a question, then the answer will be a real answer. So I hope that you had the question, they had the answer, or the tension, the resolution, maybe that's a better term. The tension is, intimacy seems to be a negative experience, to be a low experience, to be experienced as certainly not uh, a higher experience, 
the complete opposite of a religious experience or a holy experience. The Jewish take is the complete opposite. Not only is it not an unholy experience, not only is it not a concession to um, physical lust and pleasure and passion, whatever, not only is it not that, on the contrary, it has a potential to be the holiest experience, the experience in which we connect with God in the greatest way, more than any other religious experience. No other religious experience do we find that you're channeling God's one pure, perfect oneness as we find, discussed, regarding intimacy. And it's therefore called, the intimacy is called, Kodesh HaKadashim. Not just holy, the holy of holies. It's like the Trubim on top of the ark and the holy of holies. That's the experience. It's not just holy. Many holy experiences. This can be the holy of holies. Um, when I was about 12, I was trying to decide, how do I know that God exists? Yeah. And so, well, yeah, if I, if my, it's because my mom tells me or my rabbi tells me it's second-hand information or third-hand information. Yeah, I don't know. That rabbi, he's got his own agenda. Well, how do they know? You know yeah. They rabbi told me, their mom told me. So, I thought, well, the only way I really know firsthand is I could feel there's a life force. I could feel that there's a force in my body. My parents, you know, passed it on. They didn't create it. They, I, I could feel it. I'm alive. And this, you know, complexity of wisdom was never created by my parents. So then I was kind of just tracing that energy. And then, then I was aware the sexual energy is is a different energy and a deeper energy. And it felt because it was a deeper energy, it felt like a holier energy. And you know, we're told life is holy. Well, this is the life energy, the life giving energy sure. within the life energy. So holy of holies. Yeah. Definitely holy of holies. And and I think that again, the, the the important thing to remember is that anything that's truly powerful can be used in a negative way. In a, in a hurtful way, etc. So, you know, if it seems like it could be such a low experience, it could be a low experience because it's powerful. But, and it also has the potential to be the highest experience. This tells us, this is one of the signs that we have that tells us that Judaism is not a religion. You know that? We've talked about this before. Judaism is not a religion. What, what do I mean by that? Religions typically are based like this. Religions are typically um, human beings uh, search for a higher connection. How do we, religions are all about how do we connect with God? How do we get higher? So the typical understanding is like, I feel or we feel like we're stuck. We're stuck in the mundane and the everyday and we want to get higher. How do we get higher? So that's religion. Religion allows us to get higher to connect with something higher outside of our experience. So we're moving upward and outward. So what that means is, in the experience, we're, we're, what we're saying is that the, the, the experience that we have, the physical experience, is lowly. We've got to move that to, aside to have a higher experience. Judaism, however, is not about getting high. In that sense. Judaism is not about getting higher than this experience. Judaism is coming from God to us, not from us to God. In other words, Judaism, religions are about us connecting with God. Judaism is about God connecting with us. What do I mean by that? It's about God telling us what He wants us to do, how He wants to live our lives. That's what Judaism is. It's not a religion, it's a way of life. So, God says, I want to be present in your life, and therefore... I want, in other words, I want you 
to make the world a better place. And how are you going to do that? By living your life in a certain way. God wants to be in our lives, in our marriages, in the workforce, in our experiences. God doesn't want us to leave those experiences. So a typical religious perspective is, I'm doing all this stuff, I'm working, I'm married, i got a family, I have all these things, i got to eat and drink, i got to provide, carpools, da, 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 all this lowly stuff. How do I connect with God? How do I get out? How do I escape? So give me the tools to get out of here and to climb the mountain to get closer to God. Give me a meditation. Give me something. Give me, give me a, a, a way to get out so that I can get higher. Judaism is not about getting higher. Judaism is God saying, this is what I want you to do here on earth. I got a job for you. I got a mission for you. While you're living, while you're working, while you're raising a family, in the bedroom, in the home, in the boardroom, in these spaces, I want you to make a difference in the world. I want you to make a world a better place. So it's not us trying to escape and get closer to God. It's about God saying, this is how I want you to live your life. So again, this is just another implication of that concept, of this, of this truth about Judaism. It's not a, if, if life would be about us escaping the physical, yeah, then intimacy would not be the ideal. We have to escape it. It's a physical experience. Escape it. God says, I want to be, I want to be present in your intimacy. I want to be, that should be a holy experience. How do you make that a holy experience? Through a perfect union between the two parties. Now, how do we get that? The question is, how do we get to a space, to a place, where intimacy is really about a union between the two parties, between spouses, and not something that is less than that? In other words, Judaism is telling us that intimacy is not lowly, but it's holy. How do we ensure that it's indeed holy? How do we actually achieve oneness and intimacy? We said that when husband and wife are one, that channels God's oneness. God's oneness is found in that space. How do you make sure that that's happening? How do you make sure that there's actual oneness in the experience of intimacy, and it's not a fragmented experience? It's not a lowly experience. How do we do that? How How do we put the intimacy, or the intimate, back in intimacy? How do we make sure that in the experience of intimacy, there's actually a connection between the two parties, and it's not anything less than that. Because it's all too uh, possible that intimacy can remain a selfish experience, one that does not create a oneness between the two parties. And that's not what we would consider intimacy. That's a uh, self-centered indulgence. So we'll present now three methods for enhancing the intimate experience. What do I mean by that? Enhancing the oneness or the intimacy in intimacy. Does that make sense? See where we're going with this? In other words, how do we ensure that in intimacy there's actually a connection being forged between the two individuals? So let's talk about uh, three methods. Method number one, you should have this in your book. I'll tell you what page we're on. We're on page uh, 35. So you see where it has the different levels. Level one containment. So at a level one, I'm going to talk about method one. So here we have it. Oh, look at that. Got the names coming together. All right. In the space, let's just do some quick uh, slide recap. So in the space where uh, the spouses converge, that's where God is found. Three levels of intimacy. One is containment. Two is responsiveness. And three is procreation. Now, this is going to be very vague right now. These three phrases, I'm going to explain what they mean. And these are not written in stone. You can call them whatever you want. I'm going to explain the concept behind it, behind the phrases. These are just words that, uh, that somebody came up with. Let's talk about level one or method one. The basic challenge of, or to experiencing holy intimacy 
is that it can devolve into an entirely self-serving experience, one that has nothing to do with connecting the two parties, connecting the spouses. Therefore, the first and most basic step to enhancing intimacy is ensuring that the focus be completely on the other. In other words, ensuring that there's an actual connection being forged between the two individuals. This is achieved in one way, in a very strong, important way, with what I'll call the Jewish rules, so to speak, that regulate and govern intimacy. Rules that at first may seem restricting, but are really designed to allow one to focus on the connection with the other during the intimate experience, as opposed to just focusing on oneself or focusing on something else. Again, we're going to present now some Jewish rules that keep intimacy focused on the other so that there is an actual intimate experience where one is intimately connecting and becoming one with the other. It's almost like, before I present the, uh, you know, the details, it's almost like a laser. What's the difference between a laser and a light bulb? They're both emitting light, but a laser is focused light. It's one frequency, one wavelength, and it's focused. And because of the focus, it's powerful. And so the idea is here, how do we create that focus in the intimate experience where there's really a connection being forged between the two parties? So the first basic fundamental rule of intimacy, the Jewish rule, fundamental rule of intimacy is one man, one woman in a committed relationship. That is a major rule of intimacy. Why? Intimacy that occurs outside of that, whether it's cheating on one's spouse or whether it's just hooking up randomly, it's not going to be an experience in which one is connecting deeply with the other. A one-night stand, etc., is not an intimate experience. If intimacy is defined as the oneness between the parties that channels the oneness of the divine, there's got to be a framework for that to happen. It's got to actually be a real, deep oneness and connection. So it's got to be in the context of marriage. Now, let's look at some more detailed rules. And some of these, respect, privacy, dignity, commitment. Okay, forget those words for a second. I want to give you some more detailed rules that you may or may not have heard of before, but they're very interesting, and we're going to go through them. Jewish law says, that this was the, de- the fundamental general rule. Here are the details, or some details. Number one, no intimacy if husband and wife are angry at each other. That's what Jewish law says. Are these from the book, Rabbi? No. Nope. This is uh, the uncensored version. No, I'm kidding. All right. No intimacy if husband and wife are angry at each other. That's number one. Number two, no intimacy if husband or wife is inebriated. You had a few l'chaims, no intimacy. Or asleep. Now, I'm just saying, it says says in Shulchan it says in the Code of Jewish Law, if you were tempted, it's speaking to the husband, when your wife is sleeping, there is no intimacy. Anyway, again, okay. No, look at number three. No fantasizing about another during intimacy. Okay? Next one. Clothing separating the couple is discouraged. Now, we had this concept in the Fascinating Facts class that some of you took. Um, the hole in the sheet, absolute myth. Heard about the hole in the sheet? Huh? Yeah, exactly. It's a talus cut and it's a pair of scissors. No. The point is, to absolutely discouraged. Next, the room should be darkened. Ideal time is late at night. The couple should be face to face. Here are various guidelines and rules. There are more, but these are some of them. 
What do you see as the common uh, theme that runs through all this? Give me something either a little bit more general, specific, I'm not sure. Give me something else. Huh? Oh, exactly, exactly. The point of intimacy is a oneness between the parties. You're trying, right? You're forging that oneness. How can you forge the oneness if you're angry at each other? There's not oneness. There's, there's energy there, but it's not oneness. There's not that union. There's, if, if one is upset at the other, if they're both upset at each other, then you're dealing with mentally, emotionally, there's not a oneness. If intimacy is all about a pure oneness, there's, there's, there's a dissonance here. It might be energy, but there's a dissonance here. It's not a perfect, seamless union. And that's not kosher. We're talking about kosher intimacy. Like my friend uh, Shmuley Boteach read his book, Kosher. Yeah. Right? It's kosher intimacy. If you're angry at each other, there's not intimacy. It's something else, right? And our society might say, oh, that's, it's not intimacy. It's not kosher. No intimacy if one is inebriated. Why? Because again, you're not connecting. You're not, you're not of sound mind to connect. Asleep. How can you connect with somebody who's sleeping? Fantasizing about another. What's the problem there? You're not connecting. Forget about the... I mean, I can't forget. You're not connecting with that party. You're connecting with somebody else. So it's not intimate. There's no intimacy. Right? There's no oneness. Again, there's a physical act happening, the physical act of intimacy, but it's not an intimate intimacy. It's not a kosher intimacy. It's not an intimacy that's going to channel the oneness of God. Intimacy happens when two people are connecting. Not when somebody is connecting with somebody else that's not present. That's not intimacy. Clothing separate the couple is discouraged. Why? Because again, there's got to be a oneness. A oneness of body and soul. And mind and emotion. Now, look at the last three. Room should be darkened. Ideal time is late at night. The couple should be face to face. These are the same ideas. Ideal time is late. Let's start with that one. Ideal time is late at night. Why late at night? What do you think? Oh, no distractions. The kids are asleep, right? There's no, there's no distractions. The work is finished. Everything is finished. Now you can connect with your spouse. Now you can connect with the other. Otherwise, you're distracted. You're not connecting. That's why the room should be darkened. Not, the point is, there should be less visual distraction, stimuli, than, than more. Let's put it this way. If Jay Leno is in the bedroom, it's not, a good th- it's, not, it's not healthy for anybody. You don't need Jay Leno, not even, not even Conan. Not even Conan should be in... This, is he on tonight? Is he still on? Well, Letterman. Letterman. I thought it was that Conan was funny. Every time I saw it, I was, ah, whatever. Okay. Letterman. Yeah, okay. So... <laughs> so here's the deal. Here's the deal. Mrs. Leno, Rabbits and Leno, should be together with, with Jay Leno. They should be together. But nobody else. Because if you're together with Jay, you're not together with the other. Perfectly, seamlessly, without distraction. The point is, again, kosher intimacy is intimacy that is perfectly seamless and perfectly... I don't know what the words are. Completely one, without any distractions or any other pieces involved. No anger, no inebriation, no sleep, no fantasizing, no clothing getting in the way, no visual stimuli getting in the way. 
no distractions, otherwise get in the way, and of course face-to-face. Because if it's about a connection, it's got to be about a connection. It's got to be about uh, a connection that happens. For one. If it's dark, and we're not talking about dark, listen, it, there's dark and there's dark. We're not, uh, you know, we're not, uh, what's a really dark place? I'm not sure. Huh? It says dark in, dark in. You know, it's, the, the idea here is you're trying to minimize the distractions. Right? Right? Cell phones. Anyway, so the point is again, you're trying to. The idea here. Focus. That is completely the, that's the best word. Focus on the other. These rules. And again, you might say, oh my gosh, all these restrictions. Oi, where's the fun? The point is, fun, fun, fun is great, but intimacy is about focusing the connection, about a perfect union between the two individuals. How do you achieve that? Through perfect focus. No distractions, nothing else, only focusing on you. And you're focusing completely on me. And that is... And so why is it called containment? I, I don't like that word, by the way. I don't like how they capture containment. The point is that the restrictions, this is like the, the restri- these rules, even though they might seem restricting, are actually liberating because they allow you to actually connect with the other. Because if you got Leno and you got your cell phone on and you're checking the sports scores in the picture in picture and you're thinking about somebody else and you maybe had a few Lachayims, you know what? You're not connecting with the other person. So are these the same rules like Shabbos, like Shabbos, Shabbos that, you know, the lies Exactly. Friday night is now the perfect time for this. Even though, say kiddush on grape juice and you're good to go. No, but but huh? You got the can- you got the candles. You're not angry at each other because it's Shabbos. I could be angry on Shabbos. You're not sleeping while well, Friday. You get tired, but whatever. Nebriation. Anyway, the idea here is you keep it focused on the other, and that is the most the containment. The rules are focusing like a laser, so you can actually focus on the other. Nothing else. It's a powerful tool. Powerful tool to understand the what, the why. Of, see, understanding the why of intimacy. I said this before. Simon Sinek, TED. Look at it. Watch that guy's presentation. Tremendous stuff. That's aside. You want to talk, talk about why? Simon Sinek. He wrote a book. The why, the what, and the how. Fantastic presentation on TED. If you know what TED is, TED.com. Check it out. Simon Sinek. Anyway, but, but here's the point. When you understand the why of intimacy, now the how makes sense. What? If the why of it, if intimacy, what's the purpose of intimacy? So if the purpose is have fun. So then maybe I can have fun thinking about somebody else also. Fantastic. If that's the why, then the rules don't make sense. If the why of intimacy is about connecting the perfect union between the individuals to perfectly channel the divine oneness, oneness that channels oneness, it's a holy experience, divine experience, well then, these rules make perfect sense. You can't achieve that without these rules. You can't achieve that being scattered and distracted. It's not going to be a perfect oneness. Does this make sense? Is there a, is there a blessing you're supposed to say? No. Not a Shekhyanam. By the way, but I wanted to say this before. At a... Uh, no, at a um, at a um, at a wedding, you'll notice that traditionally the groom and the bride don't drink for that reason. So they say lechaim; they'll pour for others. No, the bride and the groom. No, they have a sip of wine. Hopefully, that's not going to keep them below the blood level. No, you're allowed to have a little bit. No, but but if you go up to if you go up to the groom and say, "Hey, lechaim." 
So again, in traditional, they're not no no chasen, no kala, no bride, no groom. It's knocking down hard liquor. Maybe a little bit, drop of wine, but nothing heavy, nothing hard, because you're actually not allowed to. And like that would kind of mess up the first. I mean, that would not be ideal. You know. Anyway, so <laughs> huh? Besides, see, I get so besides. I love how they put it together. These are two different laws. Like these are two different rules. No one's your husband, wife is inebriated, and another one is asleep. But I love how they kind of in the PowerPoint they put it together because when you drink, you might be sleeping. So they kind of like all put it together. But they're two different ideas, and the idea is again, it's all about the focus. Let's talk about. So again, what's the first method of enhancing intimacy? Make it an intimate experience where you're connecting with the other, not being distracted with something else. Let's talk about method number two. Response. Yeah. You said they put them together. Where are these laws? Shulchan Aruch, Kodah Jerusalem. You have it? No. The, it's straight up Kodah Jerusalem. Maimonides talks about it. comes from the Talmud. Based on... It's all... It's all there. Hmm. It's a code book. Let's see if I can, if I can get you a... Um... Yeah, exactly. Article 3, Part 2A states, yeah, but it's in, it's in Shulchan Aruch. I would recommend, by the way, there's, a, there's an abridged version of Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch is the code of Jerusalem. Called the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch, which means the abridged version. It's like the Cliff Notes. Um, tremendous stuff to look through. It's in Hebrew originally, and it's in English now. Translation. I got a copy at home. It's two volumes. If you really want to get a thorough, if you like, if you're like, what does Jewish law actually say? This is not Kabbalah. This is not mysticism. It's just straight up what to do from the moment you wake up through the daily cycle, through the Shabbos, the holidays, just every area of pretty much every area of, of life. What Jewish law has to say about it? What you should do? What you should. So, go to Jewish law is the way to go. You want a deeper take on it, and then you got to study the other stuff. But as far as the basics, the rules, like this stuff, go to Jewish law. Now. Let's take a look at method number two. And again, what does method number two mean? Method two for achieving greater or uh, a deeper form of intimacy. So the second um, second method is called, you'll see it on page 36, is called responsiveness. Because intimacy, as what we've talked about, so intimacy can be experienced on an even deeper level than the one we just spoke about. This is when intimacy is experienced not as the desire and pleasure of each spouse individually connecting with the other, but it's, it's my own, it's the individual's own desire and pleasure, but as it's experienced as the desire and the pleasure of the other. In other words, the focus of one party is on the other's desire and pleasure, the other's needs. Now this is intimated in the Torah's presentation of the mitzvah of intimacy. Okay, take a look. This is a really, uh, a really powerful concept. Denise, will you take it away? Page 36, text 10a from Exodus. This is actually my bar mitzvah portion. <laughs> Little did I know that. All right. <laughs> Says the Torah, a husband must provide for his wife's food, clothing. Okay, what does this mean? So it means... Okay, you see what it means. It's a mitzvah for a man. Let's focus on the third thing, to provide for his wife's conjugal needs. Now, I want to say something like this. Uh, first of all, you have to understand how revolutionary this concept is. Because for millennia, for thousands of years, society, 
all societies spoke of intimacy as being pre- pre- predominantly a male need and drive. And women were expected to serve this male need or their husband's intimate needs, etc. 3,320, almost 24, in a few weeks will be 3,324 years ago. Torah paints a radically different picture. Perhaps we might call it a progressive picture, which is that women also have, have intimate needs. And the husband is obligated by Torah to be sensitive to the wife's physical intimate needs. Says the Torah. This sounds like the revolution, right? The re- uh, right? Women's revolution, sexual revolution that we had a few, a few decades ago. Torah 3,300 years ago was saying the husband has to be sensitive, has to recognize and be able to respond to his wife's physical needs. The wife will have physical needs. And the husband is enjoined to be responsive. Not that the wife doesn't have to be responsive to the husband's physical needs, but the Torah typically speaks and instructs the party that needs the most reminder instruction. So the husband needs a little bit more of a, of, of a reminder to be sensitive to the wife's needs. And again, it's more of a revolutionary concept. The wife, it, it, in general, at all has physical needs. The world did not recognize this concept that's in Torah. Again, it's laying dormant for 3,300 years. And finally, we woke up as, as in general as a society. Um, but the underlying message here is, in addition to this revolutionary concept about uh, the roles of men and women, about the equality, in a sense, of, of men and women, the, the fascinating the message, or the, the, the underlying message that, that we want to focus on in this context of intimacy is that intimacy is all about sensitivity and responsiveness, being aware of your spouse's needs and responding in kind. So again, the first level of intimacy is you're, you're focused on your own needs. And as you have your own needs and desires, and etc. How you're expressing that by connecting with your one spouse, your one partner, in a committed, deep way with all these rules and with all the, let's call it the focus. Fantastic. The second, this deeper dimension, is that you're not focusing on what you need or what you want. You're focusing on what your spouse wants, on what your spouse needs. You're... In other words, it's almost like let's do this in like a question and answer. You want to experience, you want to, yeah, you want to experience true intimacy. You want to experience um, a oneness, a true, real, bona fide oneness with your spouse. That's great. Here's the question that the Torah will ask you: Are you aware of their spiritual needs, their their cycle, uh, their mental needs, their emotional needs, their physical needs? You you say you want to connect. You want to deeply connect with the other. You want intimacy. Intimacy is all about connection. You want to connect with the other. Here's the here's the here's a hundred dollar question, million dollar question. Do you know what they want? Are you aware of what they need? Are you ready, willing, and able to? And will you respond to their needs? That's the question. That's the big question. So intimacy, from a Jewish context, from a Torah context, Torah perspective, means truly connecting with another, and that requires. Awareness of what they need and responsiveness to, to their needs. So Torah's vision of intimacy is where each spouse is not only concerned with their own needs and desires, but primarily perhaps with the other. So that's why the Torah says, what is the mitzvah? What is the mitzvah of onah, which means um, uh, conjugal, uh, what's the mitzvah of, of, of uh, what do you call it? Conjugal needs. What is that mitzvah? The mitzvah is that the husband respond to his wife's needs. And the wife, again, even though it's not stated, but the understanding is that the wife responds to the husband's needs. When each party is thinking about the other, that's even a deeper connection than before. You understand how it's a deeper connection? Make sense? One way is that you're thinking about yourself, yourself vis-a-vis connecting with the other. This way, you're, not, you're thinking about the other first, and, you're, and the other's thinking about you first. 
And that's a, a very uh, a very deep connection. Um, what is Yigra? Huh? Oh, Yigra, Yigra means withhold. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. The mitzvah is written in the negative. A person should not with a person should not. It's not withhold. It's not. It's not saying with, withhold is, is is the wrong. It's the wrong form of it. It means do not neglect. Let's say because withhold sounds like devious. It's more of do not neglect. How you're not going to be neglecting if you're aware of it. So the message is: Are you aware of what the other person needs, or are you just aware of what you need? Are they aware of what they need, or are they aware of what you need? The deepest form of intimacy is where you're aware of what the other needs. Then you're truly one. You're truly one on a deeper level. Let's take a look at a beautiful text. Text 10b. Denise, take it away. 10b um, explains the word ona, which means conjugal needs, but in a related, an etymological, an etymologically related way. You'll see what I mean. Text 10b. Take it away. Look what he says, the Meshachachma. It's such a beautiful concept. Ona, the word Ona means conjugal needs. But it's also related to the word One. La'anot. Who knows, uh, who's my Hebrew linguistic expert here? Uh, La'anot. Onin, Amen means you answer, you respond. One also means to answer, to respond. The message here is that, what does it mean? What... What is the mitzvah of the husband providing for his conjugal needs? The ona, it's also about responding to the conjugal needs. It's all about being responsive. And to be responsive means that you've got to be, the first step to be responsive is you've got to be aware in the first place that the other one has needs. Ah, the other one also has needs in this. Oh, I didn't know that. Now you know, so now you can respond, right? You can't respond if you don't know. You can't answer the phone if you don't hear it ring. If you don't know that the phone rings, how do you know? So the point is that you got that a deeper form of intimacy is not only connecting with the other, focused on the other and no one else, but you're focused on the other so much that their needs become your needs. That their needs become something that you respond to. And your needs is what they respond to. Make sense? Yeah? Uh, 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 maybe. Good. Let's, look at, let's, let's take a look at method three. Method three, or what I would like to call uh, level three. They call it level three. Procreation. We've got to explain what this means. Let me see if we skipped any yeah, responsiveness. Husband must fully provide. Okay, good. So you're not only connecting, but you're also thinking about uh, anticipating or understanding the other's needs. So you have containment. Those are the rules that keep you focused. Responsiveness, not only are you focused on the other, but you, the other's needs are your needs. Procreation, or you're responding to at least. Procreation means something even higher. On, on one level, it's even higher. So there's a unity, let's, go, let's quickly recap again. I know we just did. There's a unity that happens when both spouses are connected with each other. There's a unity that happens when both spouses are primarily concerned for each other. Then there's a unity that occurs when both spouses are looking to achieve and working together to achieve a goal that's greater than the both of them. See that? There's a unity when two people connect. There's a unity when two people are thinking about each other. And caring about what each other needs. Then there's a unity that happens when both people are thinking about not only each other, but something greater than themselves. And they're working toward a greater goal than the both of them. A transcendent goal. This is perhaps the greatest form of intimacy. The oneness that exists when husband and wife are striving for a goal that transcends them both. And this is the intimacy that occurs when husband and wife are focused on the mitzvah of having children. 
The mitzvah of having children is a, is, a, is a mitzvah that transcends both of them. And what I'm referring to is the mitzvah of having children, bearing offspring, both the physical mitzvah and the spiritual mitzvah, which we'll see now. Let's take a look at text 11a. And this is, by the, as was mentioned before, the very first mitzvah that's given to Adam and Eve, the first human beings, is this mitzvah. And we have it captured in text 11a. Burton, take it away. And ever since, we've been fruitful and uh, we've been multiplying. Now, this is the first mitzvah. And on a simple level, it's a, physical, it's a commandment physically to have children. But there's also a spiritual aspect to the mitzvah as well. You don't have this text, or you don't have a text that represents this in, in the book. You have other texts that talk about the spiritual connotation of the mitzvah. I want to share with you what the Zohar says. The Zohar says that with every intimate union between husband and wife, there is produced a soul sometimes the soul inhabits a body and is born as a child. In other words, sometimes that is manifest as a child that is born nine months later with the soul now inhabits a body as a, as a person that we can see, a child that we can see. Other times, when that doesn't happen, a soul, a life is created, but it's a purely spiritual life, it's a soul. But every union, every intimate union creates a soul. Everyone create, every union creates a soul. So Judaism, well, here's the, when I say create, we have to be careful with that. It doesn't mean totally, we don't have the power of totally creating souls. It means drawing down. It means eliciting. We don't have, we, I, thank you for making sure that I'm, I'm clarifying this. We're not creating the soul. The Talmud says there are three partners in a child's uh, birth or child's life. The father, the mother, and God. The father provides some DNA the mother provides other DNA, and God provides the soul. So the soul is definitely coming from God. When I said that the, every intimate, uh, intimate um, union pr- creates a soul, I mean really produces a soul in the sense of it elicits a soul. It, it calls forth a soul. Either the soul will be called forth from the divine chambers, Kabbalah speaks about a divine chamber of souls, whether be, it will be called forth to then go into a body, or whether it will just be called forth to exist as a soul somewhere on some level. And again, I, I, I don't know exactly what that means. So are you because every act of yes, intimacy creates a soul? That's exactly what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. It's what, the, what Kabbalah says, what the Zohar says. Every, so here's the point. The midst of being fruitful multiplied on, on a spiritual level, happens at every time, at every moment. Even if there's no possibility to have children, for whatever reason. Right? For whatever reason. Say some of the woman's pregnant, or the woman can't have... It doesn't make a difference. Or the husband can't... Every act of intimacy, because it's an act of union, right, of, of oneness, so it calls forth a divine, of divine presence and produces, in a sense, a spiritual reaction, which we're calling a soul. That's what I said. Where they're hanging out, I don't know. Maybe there's a daycare center. I don't know. I, you know some, there's some, again, we don't, we don't inhabit the realm of the... Uh, you, It's possible, but it sounds like... But then you could argue that no, nothing's actually happening. If there's just potential. But it seems like there's something... It seems like there's something actually happening. That um, Are we talking deep analysis? Yeah. Yeah, that's what yeah. yeah. Oh, you know what it says? I'm seeing here now. It says, very interesting. 
From holy unions which do not result in physical progeny emanate the souls of converts, as well as holy thoughts that serve to awaken people to do tshuva to repent. In other words, there's some holy, yeah, it's like holy energy that in a sense is waiting to be tapped, waiting to inhabit like a, like a, channel, like a channel. So there is this concept of there's a holiness, like a holy energy that could stir a person. It doesn't say that it's clearly the same person or the same two people, but could stir someone else to, to goodness because of that soul that's somehow present. So it does seem like it does have some sort of influence. That's a lot of pressure. That is. Oh, nothing else. Good. Should be a lot of pressure. Good. Let it be a lot of pressure. It's a good thing it's a lot of pressure. It's a serious, serious business. It's not all fun and games. What do you mean? You thought you were going to get a fun and game session? No, this is, this is a real deal. From, from our focus here, to, re- to, being, to caring about how the other one what the other person needs. Not all about my needs in this intimate act. It's about the other. To the third part, which is thinking about an objective that's bigger than the both of us. Like, holy cow, this is producing a child or spiritual progeny. Or as uh, we, we continue with text 11 B and C, it's not only a soul that's born that's a, that's a spiritual progeny, but it's also the union of husband and wife and building a family has a positive and cumulative effect on the world around, around, around that, uh, that home and that couple. Take a look, Burton, continue with 11 B. So the Midrash says, What do you consider the offspring of a person? Their good deeds. Their good deeds are what they produce and what makes the difference. Of course, their physical progeny. But on a deeper level, progeny are the good things that we do. Continue with 11c. And it's not only spiritual. In other words, a person has to, a person is called upon to make a difference, to influence somebody else's life in a positive way. That can happen physically, right? You can you can bring to this world another another life, or it could happen in a spiritual way. You influence somebody else's life, create another Jew. The idea to create another is not only physically, but also spiritually to inspire somebody else, etc. A person's to going back to what the Midrash says: a person's progeny are his or her good deeds. What does mean? So that's why it's said that the fulfillment of that mitzvah to procreate for those that don't have the ability to actually have children of their own or for whatever reason, that actually including a child through school, a Jewish child through school also fulfills that mitzvah. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, the education. The of taking and still, still creating those Jewish children to still, still be Exactly. So a Torah perspective of it, you know, the Torah angle of it would be, exactly, a providing. In, words, in the context of Torah, it would be a Torah education to a child or to somebody else would be, etc. But it's, it's not, I want to say it's not limited to the experience of an education. It's really, because look at what Mitchell says, a person's, that's one way to do it, but a person's progeny is her good deeds. It's a, it's a more, it's a, I want to take it a little bit more general, not to take away from the specific. We want to have a specific way of, 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 of and since channeling that energy is, is well, that's one way to do it. But in general, what we're saying is that you produce offspring, spiritual offspring, by the good things that you do and the influence that you have on others. Yeah. So this follows the exact same philosophy, if I'm getting this right, that you know, when the rabbi talks about you can change the world by doing good mitzvahs, even just for yourself, it creates an environment that impacts other people. Exactly. The world changes to the better. So this is the same yes. exact philosophy. Yes. Yes. 
well, it's, it's more profound in the sense that this is considered now your children. This is your offspring. This is your contribution to the world. This is your legacy. But I want, you, I want you to think about it in one more context. And this is the magical layer of this. Think about when husband and wife are, are themselves conscious of the impact that they're making on their physical children and on the home that's an environment that's, that others are walking into or that is emanating out to others and in the, in the world at large. Think about when the two, when the two spouses are, are conscious of the impact that they're making on others and are working together as a team, in a sense, working together as a unit to achieve a higher goal than, than each other even. That is a deep form of intimacy. A deep form of intimacy that's born, again, it's not only, it's one, two, three. It's not only that I'm thinking about myself, but I'm connecting with you. It's not only I'm thinking about you before me even. It's that we're both thinking about something higher than both of us. And again, whether it's in the intimate experience itself, that we're conscious of the souls or the children that, may, that will or may be born in the experience, or whether it's in general, living life in a way that we know that we share a purpose. We're building a home together. We're building an environment, a home, that's bringing goodness into the world and kindness and having an impact on others that we invite over and an impact in general wherever we go because we're working together. That, talk about that. That's a profound level of intimacy and oneness. And then when the couple does come together in intimacy, there's a sense of a much more transcendent experience. It's not just about me. It's not even about you. It's about us, and it's about something even higher than us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not even about us. It's about something that we're both working together that's higher than us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. Absolutely. So, in, so I was saying, on this level, we can understand it in two ways. Number one is in general living together in a way that you know that you're both working together for a higher goal, and that will breed up much. But in the end, in the actual meditation, the intimacy. So, in the intimacy itself, um, the angle is the idea is that that you're conscious of the fact that this this union is actually produced whether you want to look at it producing souls or eliciting God's presence that's higher than both of you. In other words, there's a higher experience here that transcends my pleasure and needs, your pleasure and needs. It's not just my pleasure and needs. It's not, just your, it's not even your pleasure and needs. It's, it's something higher than both of us. It's a higher experience. It's a spiritual experience as we talked about before. It's a godly experience, divine experience. You're bringing, you're cre- you're bringing spiritual energy into the world. And that's something. And there's a reference here, which we're not going to get into, because we, I, we, I want to I wrap up. There's a reference in 12a about hail. The hail, one of the plagues of Egypt was the plague of hail. And the hail, we know, our tradition tells us, it wasn't just rocks of ice that fell to the earth. The ice had fire inside. And our sages understand that this is a mitzvah with a, the miracle within a miracle. One miracle, the plagues were obviously miraculous, like random things. Miraculous things. There was a miracle within the miracle that the, that the fire and ice coexisted. Why did the fire and ice coexist? Fire is water, water. They, ha- they, they, they extinguish each other. It's because they were sharing a mission that transcended both of them. When two have a high, are conscious of something higher than both of them, it can bring the two together. That's the point. Again, when the two parties, if it's about me and you, so now we can say, well, I want this, you want that. I know I should be 
focused on you. I know I should be thinking about you first, but... But when there's a goal that transcends both, when there's a higher objective, that brings people together also. One could argue in a stronger way, one could say it's a more superficial way, because it's not you, it's something higher than you. In other words, it's not as internal. You could make an argument. I I don't want to go higher or lower. I think that that's a mistake to to start pitting levels against each other. But this third idea, it's higher here, whatever, take it for what it's worth, that you're working to a higher goal, that is a very, very deep uh, form of intimacy. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Right. Right. No, don't worry. Great. That's actually a great question. Um, in general, the Jewish view is that having children is a tremendous mitzvah, and it's it can it can tremendously bind together um, husband and wife, parents, spouses, build a family, create an impact in a physical way, etc. So it's a tremendous mitzvah. At the same time, there's the understanding that a mitzvah, uh, that, what am I looking for? That it's got to be done in a, re- there ha- it has to be a re- in a reasonable fashion. In other words, if a person can't for whatever reason, you know, because it's too many kids, you know, one after the other, etc., then there is an option for contraception. Now, the, the halachic way to do it is one consults, as in every area that there's a question or something of of, uh, of importance that has to be discussed. There is a um, the idea is that it has to be discussed with a with a competent uh, halachic authorities, a rabbi that has an understanding of the intricacies of, 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 of the meaning of it and the laws, etc. And then one can get what's called a heter, which is an allowance to uh, uh, to use contraceptive. But again, it's not something that's taken lightly as a as a like a default thing. Like contraceptive, no problem. You know, when ready, ready. It's a mitzvah. It's a very important mitzvah. And saying is on the contrary that the first approach should be children. If there's some extenuating circumstances, and again, it doesn't have to be super extenuating, but uh, you know, reasonable to extenuating, then there's there's an allowance of it. But again, it's 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 typically done with a question. It's not just done by one's own volition. It's done with a question, and usually there's uh, a reasonable response that's given. Does that answer your question? Okay. Did I get that right? Okay. Good stuff. So let's wrap. Let's wrap, and we can take more questions after we formally wrap. Um, okay, so in conclusion, in summation, Torah teaches us, what do we do tonight? Torah teaches us that intimacy is not shameful, it's not sinful, it's the Holy of Holies. It's the cherubim in the Holy of Holies, it's that intimacy, it's that union, it's the holiest thing. The perfect, it's the perfect union of man and woman that is the space within which God resides. But to be holy, to be healthy, intimacy must live up to its name. It must be a union and a oneness of the two parties. If it's an empty, self-serving, disconnected experience, it's not intimate and it's not holy. So how do we achieve? We ask, so that was the first part of the class. Then we asked, how do we achieve intimate intimacy? How do we achieve intimacy that's actually intimate? So we said, number one, eliminate distractions. Connect completely with your spouse. And the Jewish laws of intimacy give you that, uh, get you to that place. Number two, how do we achieve intimacy? By being aware of and responding to your spouse's needs. Torah obligates us to be sensitive to the other. Number three, how to, how to achieve intimate intimacy. Work on a higher transcendent goal together. Whether it's bearing physical or spiritual offspring, nothing brings us closer together than working toward shared higher aspirations. So 
there's nothing as powerful in a relationship as intimacy. It has the power of ugliness and depravity, or the power of beauty and holiness. Intimacy done right is a holy experience that brings husband and wife together in the greatest way possible, creating bonds that can withstand all challenges. So we didn't speak about that. I just kind of threw that in the summary. I'm just reading off my notes because I'm trying to really compress this. So again, I'm going to read that again because I thought that was good. Intimacy done right is a holy experience that brings husband and wife together in the greatest way possible, creating bonds that can withstand all challenges. Healthy intimacy, when I say healthy intimacy, I don't mean in the typical way of, oh, i got a great intimate life. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about healthy intimacy in the sense of real intimate intimacy, where you're really connecting with the other on the various levels. It creates bonds that withstand all challenges. It is within our reach to attain holy intimacy, and Torah, of course, is our best guide. You want to see something cool? We never, we, we never really do this. I, before we do something cool. We're going to do this. Oh, man. You just did it. Okay, key points. like that little review action? Interesting. Okay, good stuff. So next week, here's a little teaser. Here's what we're going to be doing next week. The topic is, the title is, Will My Spouse Ever Change? (laughs) Hey, Leah. (laughs) Oh, bye next week. It's already 940. Will my spouse ever change? What to do about character flaws, especially... When they're obviously not your own, okay, so don't miss next week's class. If you ever wondered, if you ever had the feeling of like, oh, you how do I deal with that flaw or that? Or even if maybe your own flaws. Next week is, uh, it's a very practical class. By the way, I just want to tell you the arc of, of, of the first two classes. The, last week we spoke about the union of souls. This week was about the union of bodies and how that can also be in a holier fashion and in a true deep fashion. Anyway, I hope that made sense. Union of, exactly. Will my, I love that title. Will my spouse ever change? 